Well, hello everyone. Welcome to another episode of Millennial in the Middle. What'd you think of the little intro music there? Going back to that first episode, right? Stuck in the middle with you. You know, we're slowly stepping our game up around here. You know, the goal is to get our production level a little bit better each time, and I think we've done that. So thanks for being with us early, and uh, the more and more we do this, the better we're going to get at it. Uh, I want to give a shout out to Kel Robbins, who has helped me a lot up to this point with uh, production and kind of the marketing. We're starting to build social pages uh, for Millennial in the Middle and all sorts of things. Got some great things coming up. We mean business when we do this, and we're taking it serious. This thing's only going to grow, and it's growing because of you. Thank you so much for your feedback, as always, and let's jump into today's episode. Uh, I hope you liked episode eight. We took a little break from uh, politics in episode eight to talk about the story of the Gaimans and their daughter, Tessa, and I kind of did that on purpose because I knew that the next few episodes were going to be pretty politics-heavy, and so, you know, it was good to get a little political break, but today we jump right back into that. And today, I'm wearing my blue shirt on purpose. Why? Because we are going to break down the Democratic National Convention, which we all just saw this week. Uh, you know, it was funny. I told my sister, I talked to her just on the phone before I recorded this episode, and she said, oh, what's, what's this episode on? And I said, oh, it's going to be my reaction to the Democratic National Convention. And she said... Oh, I didn't know anything about that. I didn't watch that. And so whether you watched the whole thing and want to get a breakdown of what happened and kind of some of my thoughts there, or you didn't watch one minute of it, maybe you didn't even know the Democratic National Convention happened this week, please listen to this episode. I think just in this little half hour I have with you, we're going to talk about enough to where you'll feel uh, a good synopsis of what happened. Now, with that... Uh, as always, I love getting messages from you. I love getting feedback. I read all of your comments because really a lot of what you're saying to me right now is shaping the content I'm putting together, uh, the angle I take on some of these topics. And I got a question from uh, a listener named Jane this week that I really appreciated what she said. She said, Connor, I really respect what you are saying about the media. And I understand the media is, the media is so agenda-driven and they all kind of have an angle that they're trying to pull off. So she said, where do you go to get your news? Where, where do you go to try and get unbiased information to see what's going on? Because I want to be informed, but I want to try and do it in a way that doesn't always have that agenda, right? It's a good question. And honestly, that's a hard answer to give. And I said a couple things to her. I said, one, just don't always get your news from the same place, right? I think the more you mix up the type of sources and the places that you go, the better. If you're always listening to the same pundit talk, you know, that person is going to really, whether you, you know, the reason you listen to them is because you connect with them. But that starts to control the way you think about things. So every once in a while, listen to someone from the other side of things. Open your mind up to those other opportunities. But the biggest piece of advice I gave Jane is I said, one thing I always try to do is I like to listen to the speech rather than listen to someone else's speech about the speech, right? I think it's so funny, you know, a speech is 15 minutes long. We're like, oh, I don't have that much time. But I'll listen to someone for 10 to 20 minutes, break down what they meant, what it was all about. 
If you want to know what's happening, just check it out yourself. And that's a lesson I learned at the Mount Rushmore event. Because like I said in that intro video, there I was at the Mount Rushmore event. I heard the speech from Christy Nome, the governor of South Dakota. I heard the speech from you know President Trump. And I took it all in. I was there. And then I read the news the next day about what happened, about what was talked about in the speech. And I was like, no, that, that's not what I got. That wasn't my takeaway. And I think it was a really good learning lesson for me to just pay attention to what's actually happening. And so that's how I decided. Jane actually sent me that message at the start of the week. And so I said, you know what? That's how I'm going to approach the convention this week. So what I decided to do is I have not watched any pundit. I haven't watched any of their reaction, any of the spin. Uh, I haven't watched Sean Hannity and Tucker Carlson and what they've said about it. I haven't watched the late night hosts that I love watching, Trevor Noah, Seth Meyers, Stephen Colbert, talk about that. I just decided to stay out of all of that. In fact, I even so went so far as I didn't watch in the convention the openings by the celebrities. I know that it was Kerry Washington, Eva Longoria, and Julia Louis-Dreyfus, Elaine from Seinfeld, right? Uh, and I just decided, you know what? I don't want to hear what they have to say. I'm going to listen to every speech. I'm going to watch every speech. I'm going to come up with what I think, and then that's what I'm going to talk about on the podcast. That's what I'm going to share. So maybe what I say here today is totally off base. Maybe what I say here is the same thing you watched on Fox News or on CNN last night. I don't know. But I think it has been good for me to just really pay attention to what they are saying and break it down. So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to break down the Democratic National Convention that happened this last week, and we're going to talk specifically about Joe Biden, get to know him a little bit better. Uh, I know that as you listen to this today, you may pick up some things about uh, Joe Biden that you haven't known before, and hopefully that's a good thing for you. Well, it definitely will be a good thing for you as we enter the election cycle. And then just so you know, I am going to do the same thing in next Sunday's episode. So next Sunday's episode will be my reaction to the Republican National Convention and uh, kind of what went on there and that bit. So today you're going to see me make the case a little bit for Joe Biden. You're going to see the arguments I liked. You're going to see the arguments I didn't like, the problems I had. And we're going to do this all from that mindset of a millennial in the middle. So the Democratic National Convention. Um, first off, just some overarching thoughts. Obviously, this was one of a kind in that it was virtual. And this is a what both parties are facing. And I'll tell you, it's not easy. There's no doubt that when you host a virtual conference, there is a lack of energy. It feels kind of sterile and staged in a way. And I did get that feeling watching the Democratic National Convention. As much as I tried not to have that feeling, it's hard to replicate the in a big stadium, giving a speech that's inspiring thousands compared to being in a dark, echoey room, giving a speech to nobody with long moments of silence where you're used to hearing applause. It's just strange. And I'm curious to see if the Republicans do things a little differently next week. But it's 2020. That's the world we're in. Unfortunately, these are just the cards that we are dealt, right? Um, I would love to have seen more authenticity and more of the organic side from the politicians themselves, from Joe Biden, from Kamala Harris. Uh, 
one thing that I frankly thought was kind of weak. Uh, I really liked some of the things in Michelle Obama's speech, but it came out that Michelle Obama's speech was filmed a couple weeks before. It was filmed before uh, Kamala Harris was actually announced as the vice president pick. So she didn't mention that. And to me, that just seems a little lazy, right? Like, we're all a part of this movement. Let's be here. Let's be present. Why would we record a speech that's going to be given in two, uh, that's going to be given in two weeks? Michelle, how much more would I have loved to you to turn on the camera, turn your FaceTime on, and talk to America? That's what we want to see, right? All of these podcasts that I do, I do in one take. Now, I realize I'm in a room by myself talking to a microphone, but it's in one take. It's from the heart. I think we could do a lot better with that, not making it seem so staged. Now, there's some risk that comes on with that. Sometimes I say stupid things. Sometimes I go back and listen to my podcast later and go, oh, I said the opposite thing I meant to there, right? I said episode when I meant to say podcast or whatever it is, but it's real. And people can connect when something's real, when something's authentic and something's organic. So... As I watched the Democratic Convention, here's what I tried to do. I wanted to look for reasons to vote for Joe Biden, as opposed to looking for reasons to vote against Donald Trump. In fact, I saw a meme at the start of the week, and it's that meme, the picture of Willy Wonka, Gene Wilder there looking with that face in the camera. And he says, uh, oh, so you're voting for Biden. Tell me why without mentioning Trump. And I think that's a really good practice no matter who you're voting for, right? You're voting for Trump? Tell me how without talking about, or tell me why without mentioning the Democrats. You're voting for Biden? Great. Tell me why without mentioning Donald Trump. So that's what I tried to do. Now, early on in the convention, uh, the first night, the theme was we the people. There was this mindset of unity. There was this mindset of bringing people together and avoiding the divisiveness, which I'm all for. Obviously, that's what this podcast is about in a lot of ways, right? I love that I have listeners on both sides of the aisle. And I do really respect the fact that the Democratic Party brought some people onto the Republican or the, uh, the National Convention, the Democratic National Convention that were Republican, that had a different mindset that still considered themselves Republicans, but were endorsing Joe Biden. Uh, The two that were the most prevalent or prominent of those um, was John Kasich, former governor of Ohio that ran against Donald Trump in 2016, and Colin Powell. Now, I want to share, uh, first off, a message I saw on Facebook from a listener of this podcast. She's awesome. But I really like what she said here because this is a real thought. This is the, these are things that we're all dealing with as we're trying to wrestle with these topics. She said, I have so much respect for Colin Powell, really any four-star general. His perspective is valuable. And just to add to my confusion on what's a conservative Republican girl to do in a party that chose Trump, Powell endorses Biden. I've never watched a Democratic convention in my life, but when I hear we the people, unity and respect, all things that ring so true to me, I pay attention. The Democratic Party is not the answer, in my opinion, she says. She says Republicans aren't the answer either, in my opinion. Any leader who fosters division versus unity is not good for America, no matter their ideology. And I thought, wow, there's a there's someone that is admitting they're in the middle, right? They're struggling to find their own place with a two-party system that maybe doesn't match with them. 
Um, and what I think is interesting here is then I want to talk about the argument that Colin Powell makes for Joe Biden. It was only a three-minute speech, so he didn't go on very long. But he made a argument for Joe Biden that was very compelling. And I liked it because it wasn't an argument against Trump. It was an argument for Joe. He said, our country needs a commander in chief who takes care of our troops in the same way he would his own family. For Joe Biden, that doesn't need teaching. It comes from the experience he shares with millions of military families, sending his beloved son off to war and praying to God that he would come home safe. And I really like that mentality. Uh, Joe Biden's son, Bo Biden, uh, fought in the Iraq war. And he's experienced what it's like to have a, a family member, a child overseas fighting for your nation. And there's no doubt that for a commander in chief to have that experience connects them to the country in a way that is very, very important and very, very positive. Now, the, my favorite speech of the week uh, was President Obama's. President Obama's speech to me reminded me why I loved that guy so much in 2008 when he was running. Why I got behind him. Because I was reminded that right there, in my opinion, is the best orator, the best speaker of our generation. He inspires, he's calm, he's soothing, his voice is just so smooth. And in fact, this speech, if you went back and watched it, it was so slow. Even for Obama, I was like, can I put this in one and a half speed? You know, like he's just so calm in the way he talks about things. But what, I, what stood out to me immediately when Obama started speaking is he talked a little bit about this erase history argument. And what I talked about in episode one with the Founding Fathers and in episode three about defending the Founding Fathers' legacy, them not being perfect men, but them establishing a foundation of government that we now can build and improve on. And that's our sacred honor, is what I said, to move that forward and progress. What I think is funny is in today's day and age, in the current political argument, you would say that post that I made was Republican, that it was conservative. Well, watch Barack Obama make the same argument. He's speaking uh, from Philadelphia in the same place that the Constitution was written. And he said, I'm in, Phil I guess, as, as I say that, here's how he starts the speech. He says, I'm in Philadelphia where our Constitution was drafted and signed. It wasn't a perfect document. It allowed for the inhumanity of slavery and failed to guarantee women and even men who didn't own property the right to participate in the political process. But embedded in this document was a North Star that would guide future generations, a system of representative government, a democracy, through which we could better realize our highest ideals. Through civil war and bitter struggles, we improved this constitution to include the voices of those who'd once been left out. And gradually, we made this country more just, more equal, and more free. And I listened to that, I was like, thank you, Obama, thank you, Barack, that's endorsement of what I've been saying this entire time. It's our job to move forward. I love the way he put that, that that document was a North Star to guide future generations so that we could become gradually more just, more equal, more free, and get closer and closer to those American ideals, those American values. I, I, I wanted to stand up and clap, and I knew he was in an empty room when he said that, but I was all about it. Now, 
He then made an argument in uh, following this up that, frankly, to me, as I listened to the entire Democratic National Convention, was the best argument against Trump. There were lots of anti-Trump arguments, right? There is a lot of Trump's not the man for a job. Let's attack his character and take him down. But this argument to me is the one that I saw a lot. This is the one that I connected with the most, anti-Trump. He said, um, we should expect the president to be the custodian of this democracy. We should expect that regardless of ego, ambition, or political beliefs, the president will preserve, protect, and defend the freedoms and ideals that so many Americans marched for, went to jail for, fought for, and died for. And he said, I did hope for the sake of this country that Donald Trump would show, I didn't like how he said might show some interest, I think that's unfair, might show some interest in taking the job seriously, that he might come to feel the weight of the office and discover some reverence for the democracy that had been placed in his care. Donald Trump is one of a kind, but I do feel that there could be a whole lot more reverence shown to the office of the presidency. And I think coming from a man who, when he sat at the Oval Office and addressed the nation, that was our president. That man, you, you felt just that man, the way he spoke, the way he handled himself, when he went abroad and our uh, relationship with other nations, you felt comfortable with that man being a representative of the nation. He represented the office of the president and the reverence that it should have well. I do think that's a knock on Trump. I think that I would like to see from Trump more reverence, more respect for, like Obama said, the democracy that was placed in his care. I know Trump's not listening to this podcast. Maybe he is. He watches a lot of TV. Maybe he listens to podcasts too. <laughs> but I would love to see next week in Donald Trump's speech, him stand up and say what the last four years have meant to him carrying the mantle of the presidency. What the last four years have meant to him representing America on a global scale and having the stewardship over 330 million Americans. I would love to hear, Donald, how that has changed you. Because it has. It doesn't matter how strong and how boisterous you are. That weight on your shoulders is going to affect anyone. And I want to hear how that's, how that's happened to you. Now, uh, the last thing that Obama said that I think, you know, the Joe Biden camp had to be really excited about is he called Joe Biden a brother. And I, I mean, I think it's funny because there's no doubt that Joe Biden is always trying to keep a very, very tight relationship to Obama uh, in his campaign process. And him being called a brother was that endorsement. And Joe Biden and Barack Obama had a uniquely close relationship as president and vice president from everything you read. Uh, some people say the vice president doesn't have a whole lot of power, but really the power that the vice president has often is in direct relationship to, the, to how closely that relationship is between them and the president. And when that relationship is a good relationship and they work together well, the vice president can have a lot of influence, can have a lot of power. And I do think that was the case for Joe Biden. Now, I want to talk a little bit next about a little bit of Joe Biden's background and his story. Uh, maybe you know this, maybe you don't. Either way, I feel like you should know this going into the election cycle. Uh, Michelle Obama, she gave a speech and she talked about empathy. And I really, really liked what she talked about empathy here. She said, 
Empathy. It's something I've been thinking a lot about lately. It's the ability to walk in someone else's shoes. The recognition that someone someone else's experience has value too. Most of us practice this without a second thought. If someone were suffering or struggling, we don't stand in judgment. It is, hard, it is not a hard concept to grasp. It's what we teach our children. And like so many of you, Barack and I have tried our best to instill in our girls a strong moral foundation to carry forward the values that our parents and grandparents poured into us. But right now, kids in this country are seeing what happens when we stop requiring empathy of one another. They're looking around, wondering if we have been lying to them this whole time about who we are and what we truly value. Now, I know that she went on to make this argument directly against Donald Trump and his lack of empathy, but I think in general, she's right. Our country right now needs to remember that we have to require empathy from one another, that the ability to walk in someone else's shoes, the recognition that someone else's experience has value too, is so important, and I would argue is more important now than ever. That's really why I love this podcast so much. I'm so excited to share my next few interviews with you. We're going to talk about Black Lives Matter. We're going to talk about race relations. And I have to have more empathy. We all do. We all have to have the ability to step outside of ourselves and think where others may be. And along with this empathy argument, Joe Biden has a lot to say for the empathy that he has. Um, You may know this. But Joe Biden's life has actually been filled with a lot of tragedy. Uh, Joe Biden was a young senator elected in Delaware. And so as a young senator and uh, in 1972, right after he'd been elected, uh, and by the way, it was Biden and his wife, uh, Nelia, and they had three kids, two boys and a daughter. And so it was December of 1972, right after he'd been elected, Nelia, his wife, and his three kids are in a car. That car was hit by a truck. And his wife and 13-month-old daughter were killed in that car accident. And his sons, Hunter and Bo, were seriously injured. At the time, Biden, who was just elected, was in D.C. hiring his staff. I don't care who you are, politics aside... That is so sad. It's tragic. Um, he talked in a, in a interview with CNN recently where he uh, asked if he'd ever thought about suicide. And this is how Biden responded. He said, honestly, I thought about it. I thought about doing it. I thought about not doing it. I thought about what it would be like to just go to the Delaware Memorial Bridge and just jump off and end it all. Biden told the correspondent. But I didn't ever get in that car and do it or was ever even close. He said, I don't drink at all. I've never had a drink in my life, but I remember taking out a fifth of whatever it was. I think it was gin and I put it on the kitchen table, but I couldn't even make myself take a drink. What saved me was really my boys. So Joe Biden, new senator, now single dad. Now they talk a lot about Joe Biden. They call him, you know, Amtrak Joe. He he has a special love for trains. The reason he had a special love for trains is immediately once he became a senator and had to go to D.C., he didn't uproot his family and move to D.C. because of what just ended up happening. So he commuted on the Amtrak every day, morning and night, from Delaware to Washington, D.C. And the reason he said he did it is so he could go home and tuck his boys into bed each night. And he met his wife, Jill. 
And his wife, Jill, basically had now two adopted sons and helped this family get back on their feet. Um, I recommend you do something. Uh, I want you to watch an interview. It's an interview of Stephen Colbert uh, with Stephen Colbert and Joe Biden. And it's in Stephen Colbert's very first week of hosting The Late Show. It was like his second or third interview. Um, now, Stephen Colbert is an incredible interviewer. I think his, honestly, his greatest skill is his ability to interview people. And they have this conversation that is so real and so raw and so tender about what Joe had been through. Now, to give you a little more context, in 2015, Bo Biden, Joe's son, who was Attorney General of Delaware, that's actually how uh, Joe Biden connected originally with Kamala Harris, as she was Attorney General in California and his son was Attorney General in Delaware. They worked on a lot of projects together and became good friends. And Joe, uh, Joe's son, Bo, also fought in the Iraq War. Uh, sounds from a lot of reports like a really, really good guy. He, uh, one of the things he asked to do when he got to Iraq was to take the name Biden off of his uniform because he didn't want to be known as a senator's son. He didn't want anyone thinking he was getting special treatment or special privileges because of his last name. And so he did. He actually took that off. A lot of respect for that. Bo Biden died of a uh, brain tumor. Uh, effects of brain cancer in 2015. Now, this interview with Stephen Colbert and Joe Biden in 2015 is just off, just on the heels of Bo passing away in his funeral. And at this point, Joe Biden had now been vice president for eight years, and we were now about to enter this new election cycle, and a lot of people wanted Joe Biden to run. Stephen Colbert was one of them. And he's trying to kind of talk Joe a little bit into that. And Joe Biden a, basically ends up saying, I, I can't do it right now. I'm emotionally drained. I'm not in a place where I feel ready to run for president. Now, the other reason I want you to watch this interview is because if you know this about Stephen Colbert, his life has been filled with a lot of tragedy as well. Uh, when Stephen Colbert was a little kid, he lost his dad and two of his brothers in a plane crash. They both died. And the two men basically sit together and just have this real conversation. It was unscripted. And Stephen Colbert says something to him in the interview. And he says, a lot of people after what happened to my dad and my brothers said that I raised my mom. Stephen Colbert talking about his relationship with his mom who was uh, you know, widowed. And Stephen Colbert says, how do you feel, if at all, that your sons raised you? And watching Joe Biden's response to that just months after one of those sons had then died of a brain tumor at 46 years old is so heartwarming, heartwarming, heartbreaking, whatever you want to call it. And these two men that really understand tragedy then have this conversation about grief and loss and what that means and how they kept pushing forward and how they kept going. It's really powerful. Uh, a warning to my conservative listeners, you might listen to that interview and walk away liking Joe Biden a little bit more. But here's my point. That's okay. You can agree with someone's policies, but still think they're a good guy. I think in our political conversation, so many of the attacks that we make now are personal. And it's, oh, you either hate Hillary Clinton 
or you hate Donald Trump and that's what decides there. Like that shouldn't ever be a part of the conversation. Don't go to the ballot boxes into in this year and decide you're going to vote on the person that you hate the least. I don't even like that word. I hate saying the word hate. But unfortunately, it's what our world is filled with today, right? Have a little empathy for that man. Now, at the same time, I will say that's the Joe Biden that I wish we saw more of. What I get so tired of right now with the Democratic strategy, you know, we jokingly talk about Hyden Biden. It's what they've done for the last three to four months. They haven't let Joe be organic, be himself, go on an interview and talk off script. It's been so staged, so choreographed. But what I think is the most likable thing about Joe is when he's not staged. When he is that Uncle Joe that's telling jokes that people like. Now, I don't know why we're not seeing that side of him. Maybe it's because that's just not a part of the plan. When you run for president, that's too big of a risk. Maybe it's because the democratic strategy is let's let Trump go up in flames and just paint this awful picture of where the world is today. And then just Joe Biden will be the alternative. But the other thing I think you'll see is you watch that 2015 episode and this isn't a good thing. Joe Biden is not in the same place that he was in 2015 that he is today. If you go and watch interviews of him right now compared to that interview just five years ago with Stephen Colbert, he has lost a step. It's undeniable. Uh, you watch him in interviews now and he, you find him getting caught on words, being slow, struggling to make a thought, struggling to complete a sentence, uh, complete like his uh, statement or idea. And I don't know if maybe that's the reason, but I will say it's a bummer because I really would have loved to have seen Joe Biden do this four years ago, 10 years ago, um, he has lost a step. Now, let's talk about Biden's speech. And I'm going to wrap things up. I know I've been going a little while here, but there's a lot of really good stuff to talk about, and I feel like we need to do it. At the end of the day, what the Democrats asked us to vote on at the Democratic National Convention is on the handling of coronavirus. This was such a unique convention because you didn't hear a lot of the same arguments that are always made. You didn't hear that much about immigration, about foreign policy. You didn't hear much about even Medicare or these different things. You heard mainly about how bad the world is right now, specifically America. There's kind of this dystopian uh, view of the nation right now that, you know, we're just in complete distress and total disarray. And we need a change. I don't want to vote on coronavirus. Frankly, up to this point, I have looked at coronavirus as not a voting issue. Why? Because it took us all off guard. There's no way to go and say, here's what would have happened had this gone down. But unfortunately, the Democrats have made coronavirus not only a voting issue, but the primary voting issue. To me, I don't love the strategy. It doesn't mean it won't work. I don't love it. It seems lazy. But here's where he focused. A couple lines from Biden's speech, and then we'll wrap up. He said, right now we're in the middle of four historic crises, all at the same time, a perfect storm, the worst pandemic in over 100 years, the worst economic crisis since the Great Depression, the most compelling call for racial justice since the 60s, and the undeniable realities and accelerating threats of climate change. And then he went on, so he paints this picture. There's four uh, four crises, really the main one he talks about, though, is the first, the coronavirus pandemic. And then he says, no rhetoric is needed. Just judge this president on the facts. 
5 million Americans infected with COVID-19. More than 170,000 Americans have died. By far the worst performance of any nation on earth. More than 50 million people have filed for unemployment this year. More than 10 million people are going to lose their health insurance this year. Nearly one in six small businesses have closed this year. If this president is reelected, we know what will happen. Cases and deaths will remain too high. More mom and pop businesses will close their doors for good. I struggle with that. I don't think you can look at cause and effect, how Trump has handled coronavirus, 170,000 deaths. There were so many times in the convention this week where it was like 170,000 people have died thanks to Trump. I don't think it's fair. I don't think that's a fair comparison to make at all. Now, couldn't you argue that coronavirus could have been handled better? Absolutely, sure. But really what this comes down to is a difference in philosophy. Now, we talked with Dr. Townsend a few episodes ago, the difference between policy and principle. And he says, most of the time our principles align, but there are some times where principles don't align. And I think this is an example of that. What we see with the coronavirus issue to me is a difference between the principles of the Democratic Party in our country and the principles of the Republican Party. Here's what I mean by that. Donald Trump handled coronavirus in a Republican way. What he did was he gave most of the power to the individual governors. He came out and he said, we're a big nation. This is a complex issue. We can't say that Iowa is the same as New York. Within New York, we can't say that Manhattan is the same as, you know, an upstate city, an upstate town that doesn't have very many citizens. So we're going to let local government call the shots here as opposed to national government. Now, I've seen this firsthand. I'm from Utah. I know a lot of my followers are from, listeners are from Utah just because you know me, right? But for those of you that aren't, it's been very interesting here in Utah to see even within our own state, how local government has had a big hand in this. I live in Utah County, Utah County close to Orem, Provo area, and then Salt Lake County, I'm about a half hour away from, that's where my parents live. And so when I go up to Salt Lake County or I go to visit my parents, it is amazing the difference when I go out in public between Utah County and Salt Lake County. They're 20 minutes away from each other. They're bordering counties. But what has happened from the president of the United States down to the governor of Utah, and then how the governor has dictated how we're going to handle it in a lot of cases, is we're going to let individual local governments decide. That is Republican philosophy. Like it or not, that's how coronavirus has been handled by this presidency. Joe Biden, for the first time in this speech, told me, here's what we're going to do differently. We could talk all day long of what we would have done differently back in March, back in July, or how we'd make college football happen now. But guess what? You're not being inaugurated if you win, Joe Biden, until January. So what are you going to do in January? And he actually gives us an answer. First time. Here's what he said. He says, after all this time, our president still does not have a plan. Well, I do. If I'm president on day one, we'll implement the national strategy I've been laying out since March. We'll develop and deploy rapid tests and results will be available immediately. Uh, We're going to make sure that medical supplies and uh, protective equipment, we have what we need and we're going to make them here in America. 
He says, we're going to make sure our schools have the resources they need to be open and safe in how they open effectively. He says, we're going to put politics aside and listen to the experts. And then he says, we'll have a national mandate to wear a mask, not as a burden, but to protect each other. It's patriotic duty. I'm not getting involved in the mask debate. But what that represents right there is a difference in principle, a difference in philosophy. Do we feel that the mask debate should be handled by our president and by our federal government? Or do you feel it should be handled by your local leaders and your local elected uh, officials? That's the difference between the Democratic and Republican Party in its core in a lot of different ways. Is the difference between big government or states' rights, right? You learn that in politics 101. So at the end of the day, I'm, I'm not telling you what's right and what's wrong. But you need to think, okay, if the Democratic Party is asking me to vote on coronavirus and how it's being handled, do we want to see a Republican philosophy of let individual governments and the states decide how they want to run things? Or do we want to make the turn for big government, big organizations, and a national mandate of here's what's going to happen? So I think it's important. Most of the time, our principles are going to align. We talk about most things today that I think all of you can agree with. The empathy, the importance of our military, what he is, what Joe Biden has been through personally that's made him the man that he is today. And you know what? You can really like Joe Biden and not vote for him. Why? Because you might disagree on his policies. That's totally okay. You might not like Donald Trump all that much and vote for him. I know a lot of people have done that, right? We have to be able to to make a more distinct idea of, to really to separate, I should say, the person from the policy and find where that balance is. And all of us, basing, based on our own judgment, are going to come to a different spot. So the last thing I'll close with, in Obama's speech, he said this, don't let them take away your power. Do not let them take away your democracy. Make a plan for how you want to be involved. And at the very end, he basically just gave a reminder to all of us to vote, to be involved, to not feel that we can't have a say, that we should be there. I echo those words. Don't let, a, don't let whoever it might be, whether it's the media, whether it's the government, whether it's the two-party political system, don't let them take away our democracy. Figure out how you're going to be involved. Think critically. Be a part of this movement. And when we do, we're all better. And let's approach this from a place of empathy, a place of understanding, And let's see if we can continue to make some progress on this country, an imperfect nation, but move us in the right direction forward. It's all we can do. Until next time. Clowns to the left me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. See you next time. Clowns to the left me, jokers to the right.